Welcome everyone to this Tyndall seminar and today our focus is climate inequality and conservation. So today uh, I'm the host, I'm Rachel Carmenta, I'm Tyndall lecturer in climate change and international development at UEA. And before I hand over I'd like to introduce our speakers and we've got two speakers this afternoon. The first speaker is uh, Patti Balvanera who is Professor at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, or UNAM. And then our second speaker will be Dr. Karen Wong-Perez, who is a senior researcher in the Climate Change Research Group with the International Institute for Environment and Development, or IIED. So I'm going to hand over to Patty. Now we're ready. The first question is, why do, value, why do people value nature um, in which the, the ways we have focused on nature and its conservation have really changed through time? Uh, people see, value nature, these ranchers value nature in different ways, all the way from very, um, from provisioning services for pasture, for water, but also for aesthetic pleasure and for shade and so on. Um, we also started reflecting on the value of nature uh, in this context of conservation. And there was a tension between those focusing on intrinsic value, so the value of nature independently of people, or instrumental value, which were associated to these ecosystem services. And, nature bringing people particular pleasure, satisfaction, or meeting their needs. But there's really a, another way to see nature, which are the relational values. And these relational values are about the importance of nature in relation to who I am and how I relate to others. So this has really taken on in the literature and in a relatively recent note, uh, Berta Martin Lopez summarized this. No, you have the intrinsic, instrumental, and relational values, and you have very different types of values involved in terms of intrinsic is basically the amount of biodiversity or characteristics. Uh, instrumental can be food and energy, relational. You have different types of connections and different types of actors are linked to these different types of values. For instance, in Intrinsic would be maybe environmentalist or conservationist, but instrumental would be the people benefiting from nature and relational would be different types of communities that are very connected to nature and their everyday identities and livelihoods depend. And these different types of values can be um, elicited using very different methods, all the way from biophysical or economic or sociocultural in the case of uh, relational values. What I wanted to say is this, these different types of values do not, are not taken into account in the same way in decisions. Here we see that, um, as we all know, there's a small handful of corporations that concentrate large shares of operations around the world that take advantage of fisheries, forests, mining, and so on. And so, we see that their values really dominate the decisions and uh, these very instrumental perspective of nature dominate. And 
it's not only about whose values dominate, but who wins and who loses. Really, the way we relate to nature is very unequal. And basically, I mean, there's huge conflicts that arise because the voices and the values by, held by local people and the burdens are taken from them. So their, their voices are not heard and they take on all the burdens. They do not take most of the benefits. And there's a clash between these different values and uh, that results from trying to uh, deal with these huge power imbalances. So. If we now go in the context of nature-based solutions, I mean, there's um, many efforts along these sides, but if we see the emphasis in nature-based solutions has largely been in terms of the biophysical conditions, no? the coastal defense, the cooling and shading, um, the flood and erosion control, and even when the people are considering is about how nature contributes to livelihoods or to cultural values or social capital. But in an actual, in a paper that actually came up this week, uh, there's an emphasis that these nature-based solutions uh, are, yeah, uh, address particular challenges. We have different types of nature-based solutions and the outcomes are about balancing biodiversity, nature's contribution to people and good quality of life. But here they show how much values and the different types of knowledge and worldviews of people are just as important as the biophysical aspects that underpin these nature-based solutions. So these solution as as much people-based as they are nature-based. One important way to think about a nature-based solution is start by assessing the challenges that trigger the solution, but from the perspectives of the different stakeholders. The second would be really eliciting the values of nature and these nature-based solutions that are held by the different types of stakeholders, not just the dominant ones. The third would be to explicitly include the different values and their worldviews, their knowledge, and their voices of the different stakeholders in the decisions about nature-based solutions. The following one would be to really um, think widely in the negotiation and decision-making processes, so really recognizing and, and reconciling the different cognitive models about these nature-based solutions in the negotiation process. And finally, to monitor and to be very mindful of how these social ecological outcomes of nature-based solutions affect differentially different stakeholders. So in synthesis, from, from this talk from the, for the COP26, what we can say is that unless we recognize and explicitly, explicitly take into account the very diverse ways in which people value nature, nature-based solutions will not be long-lasting nor fair. Great, thank you, Patty. Uh, that was a really interesting talk. I'd be interested, um, Patty, to hear if you have an example of a, of a case or, you know, of an action, a nature-based solution, whether it's red or a PS or, or another type of intervention, um, has managed to to support those relational values? So I've been working for a long time in trade-offs with forests mm -hmm. and really managing forests in ways that 
um, both provide nature-based solutions, but also support livelihoods and take into account uh, people. So for instance, um, this push for um, agroforestry or uh, agroforestry systems and diverse ones are very interesting examples when they are built together with people. So for instance, in we are working in the Lacandon forest uh, in an area where there's been a lot of research and protection, but voices of people have not been heard. So now we are collaborating with artists to and, and departing from the kitchen to by cooking together and sharing our interest in food, we start identifying the role of forest and the role of the way food is grown in terms of their livelihoods and implications for nature. And based on those efforts, we are starting to co-develop these food forests that have a series of impacts no, for people in terms of uh, providing a set of ecosystem services, uh, supporting their livelihoods, but also being very important for climate regulation, but not, and this effort is really about not imposing this idea, but rather building it together from underground conversations where their links to nature and their perspectives are actually revealed in a very um, informal setting through cooking, through working together, in these food forests. Great, thank you. I'll, um, I'll follow up on <laughs> with other questions about it, but I'm going to hand over to Mark because I see his hand is raised. Hello, Patty. Thanks uh, very much for a really, uh, really fascinating talk. Um, I was wondering if you could reflect perhaps on um, the role of inequality and how that either influences the way that people value um, nature. Yeah, so I think, I mean, any individual, any of us values nature in very different ways, depending the context we are in. No? So uh, this diversity of values is already there for most of the people and it really depends on your everyday experience and your everyday needs, the kinds of things you value about nature. And the, the role of inequality is the fact that on the one hand, um, depending on the way you have access to nature or your rights are respected, it really changes uh, your links um, to nature in terms of whether it, it can support your livelihoods or not. But the role of inequality has really a lot to do with two things, with the outcomes, so who loses and who wins, and also the other part is who makes the decision. Because as academics, we can maybe say, oh, yes, yes, I will take into account this and, and uh, design a process to uh, make the voices heard, but it's really decision makers on the ground who are uh, designing the decision-making processes and deciding whose voices are taken into account and what outcomes are considered because uh, if the, the range of outcomes for different people are not taken into account, then this will not be um, explicitly included in the negotiation process. 
Okay, thank you, Patty. Hi, everyone, and thank you for having me. I am really thrilled to be here. So since um, last year, we are still facing the unequal impact of COVID-19. The pandemic demonstrated the disproportionate impacts for groups that are already vulnerable to disasters. Um, as we all know, climate change is deeply intertwined with global patterns of inequality and is inter interlinked uh, clearly with, with nature and biodiversity loss. Um, the, the unequal, uh, the injustice is, is originated from the fact that most vulnerable people bear the brunt of the climate change impacts, yet contribute the least to the crisis. But also the most vulnerable are often disproportionately impacted by the costs of addressing climate change and adapting to climate change. So sometimes climate adaptation and mitigation responses can place a higher financial burden on already vulnerable individuals and groups. And this makes climate change a social, a social justice issue. At the same time, we witness the rapid loss of nature, which directly increases vulnerability because um, 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 uh, to climate change, pandemic disasters and, and conflicts again with the most marginalized and vulnerable hit first and hardest. Um, and this includes not only people in our generation, but future generations as well. And if we want to expand our understanding of the community of justice, this includes non-human nature, uh, non-human species as well. This makes biodiversity loss as a social, environmental and ecological justice issue. Um, here I, I just, uh, quote at the IPS report that show a growing evidence uh, about the interdependency of climate and biodiversity crisis. Last year, during the London Climate Action Week, IID hosted an event around inequality of the, 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 the how COVID-19 has aggravated inequality. And during that, the webinar, leaders from grassroots networks and social movements exposed the way in which COVID-19 has aggravated multiple pre-existing inequalities. And this is the word cloud that was generated in the webinar, where you can see the multidimensional um, aspect of inequality. You can see many interlocked development goals here, gender, health, economic, poverty, food security. And um, if we link with biodiversity, the IPC report also highlights that biodiversity underpins the delivery of many SDG, SDGs, um, food security, resilience, livelihoods, and employment. So if we link these multidimensional inequalities with biodiversity loss, um, also in the, the World Economic Forum this year ranked biodiversity loss as a global existential threat alongside weapons of mass destruction and, and state collapses. Um, also, another World Economic Forum report found that over half of the world's total GDP, around $44 trillion, is moderately or highly dependent on nature and its services. All this is to highlight the fact that biodiversity loss and climate change are inseparable threats to humanity that must be addressed together. Um, this year, um, we have a very good opportunity to break the silos and address um, climate and nature together. Um, as you know, um, there are huge expectations this year, which some people refer to as the super year for climate and nature. The meetings in preparation for the CBD COP15 are underway and will meet this October in China. 
um, this is a good opportunity to have a strong and implementable framework because um, none of the IG biodiversity targets were met. Um, and in November, we have the UNFCCC COP26 that will focus on countries increasing their ambition of their commitments to tackle the climate emergency. In all these areas, there is a risk of trying to solve the same problems in the same way as before and expecting different results. In conservation, raising ambition without paying attention to justice and equity issues have derived in efforts based on post-colonial models and fortress conservation approaches that have had very negative impacts for indigenous and local communities. And in responses to climate change, we see stark inequalities in the distribution of resources to the most vulnerable countries inequalities in the distribution of resources between mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage, inequality in the distribution of resources that effectively reach the local level. What this tells us is that tackling both issues together need responses that pay careful attention to justice and equity dimensions. And by that, I mean to the distributional aspect, to procedure, and to recognitional aspects, and incorporate indigenous, indigenous and local knowledge evolving decision-making power to the local actors, for example, among others. So why examining climate and conservation action through a justice and equity lens? Um, there are at least three reasons. One is the intrinsic reasons, aiming to have just and fair societies and just and fair climate and conservation responses have a value in itself. And these intrinsic reasons are protected by a variety of normative frameworks. For example, a key principle of the sustainable goals is to leave no one behind. So that means that no goal is considered to be met unless it is met for everyone. And clearly this is linked to distribution dimensions and, and recognition and procedural dimensions as well. The CBD has equity considerations too, and the UNFCCC Paris Agreement includes the terms climate justice, fairness and equity, mostly through the principles of common burdens, differentiated responsibilities. Instrumental reasons uh, relates to um, social feedbacks affect, affecting effectiveness of, of outcomes. In conservation, some authors have highlighted the role of feedbacks or negative equity feedbacks that originate from a perception of unfairness and, and that of perception of unfairness triggers reduced project legitimacy, non-participation, active resistance, corruption, um, all of them with implications to both efficiency and effectiveness of responses. And also some authors point out that empowered local people reduce economic inequalities and maintaining cultural and livelihood benefits increase the likelihoods of positive conservation outcomes. Um, a third reason that I, I particularly like is um, Amartya Sen's definition of constructive reasons as, as the ones that help us to shape societal values and aspirations. And here in the constructive reasons is that attention is placed on the process itself of examining issues through an equity and justice lens. So sharing and contesting idea of what this means allows us to examine our own assumption of who are the members of the community of justice? What do we owe to others? What do we owe to future generations and non-human nature? Um, and I will start by, by describing um, all the challenges in the local action through um, to this um, through these environmental justice frameworks. So some of you might be very familiar with this environmental justice framework from Schlossberg in 2007. Um, it has uh, three dimensions of justice. Um, this framework has been essential for the development of a variety of adapted frameworks 
suited for different purposes. Um, this framework includes distribution, procedure, and recognition, as dimensions of environmental justice, distribution concerns on how and what gets distributed in the construction of a just society. Um, justice and recognition puts emphasis on the underlying causes of maldistribution and exclusion, and is based on an understanding of who, what groups are systematically excluded, um, and considerations of, um, of valuing different knowledge systems. Um, Adrian Martin, for example, and others highlight the importance of these dimensions as a precondition to the other two. Um, the procedural justice um, concerns how decisions are made, how, how, who is involved, and who has influence in decision-making processes. Um, yes. This is the Equity for Protected Area Conservation Framework. Um, that was developed in the context of biological conservation. It responds to a variety of goals to ensure that equity um, is, is um, highlighted in the protected areas conservation. The CBD 14 adopted the voluntary guidance and used this framework uh, on effective governance models, including the three dimensions of recognition, procedure, and distribution, and includes the aspect of enabling conditions. And this is a framework that IID is using and the one that I'm using too in the presentation um, to structure the, um, all the messages in, in locally led adaptation responses. So you might notice that um, I'm using interchangeably the, the words equity and justice. And I wanted to clarify what this, this meaning, these terms mean or, or the, what are the, the debates around these, these terms. Um, from the political theory tradition, justice has been defined in terms of rights or in terms of adherence to a moral right. In this sense, the term justice is perceived as holding more universalistic and static meaning. Um, by contrast, equity is comparative, so it's relational. It requires comparison between, comparison between two entities by specific criteria. Um, in McDermott in 2013, it uses a metaphor to explain the rationale about the difference between justice and equity. And she says that if we consider a justice as a, blind, a blindfolded folded woman holding scales and a, and a sword ensures equal treatment for all, equity has, um, equity has her wide, eyes wide open to identify the different, this relational and comparison aspect. Now, starting with the analysis of the distribution dimension of justice um, for climate and nature action at the local level, um, we can see that climate finance is not balanced as agreed under the Paris Agreement with adaptation finance at 20% of overall climate finance flows. Um, only 14 and 2% of climate finance is going to least developed countries and small island developing states. And this is highly worrying because they are the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. If we focus the analysis on the local level, which is the main focus of the presentation, we see that uh, less than 10% of the global climate finance is committed to the local level. So this tells us that money is not getting where it matters. It's not reaching the people and places who need funding the most. Upcoming IIED research shows, for example, the case of the GCF, the world's largest climate funds, that has 70% of the projects and programs within its portfolio are channeled through international actors. So there are 
many layers of intermediation that creates confused messages around success and challenges, and that is not allowing climate finance to reach the local level. Um, in the biodiversity financial gaps research by the Nature Conservancy and 15 other institutions highlight financial gaps in, as well. Riscom's paper in 2017 um, reports that nature-based solutions can provide up to 37% of the emission reductions needed by 2030, but they only, only have 3% of international climate finance, with the bulk of, of the finance going to cut emissions from energy use. Um, what this tells us is that the unequitable distribution um, needs um, highlights the need to raise ambition, not only in the quantity of finance, but in the way it is distributed. And it also underscores the importance of finance reaching the countries and, and the local communities, which are bearing the brunt of climate change impacts. In the procedural justice dimension, um, as you remember, the procedural justice referred to decision-making processes, specifically how decisions are made, who is involved and who has influence. In climate and conservation responses, these re reflect the level of power and influence that citizens have in decision-making. And this is important because responding to the interconnected challenges of inequality, biodiversity laws, and climate change requires mechanisms that enable people to engage actively in policy and decision-making. So what are the barriers and enablers for the meaningful engagement of local actors? Um, to answer this question, um, uh, with, um, with funding from the World Bank last year, IID and three grassroots networks in Kenya, Malawi, and Uganda conducted research to answer this question um, in a project engaging citizens for socially just climate action. Um, we are, the, the, the report is upcoming. But uh, in, in summary, what we found is that social inequalities make it very difficult for people to participate meaningfully in, in, public, in, in public decisions. Uh, and the reason is that individuals engage in participatory spaces with very unequal resources, capabilities, unequal access to information, communication skills, different sense of entitlement, different familiarity with technical knowledge, and different socioeconomical status. So, um, we cluster the challenges for the meaningful engagement of citizens into different categories. Um, unequal presence, um, that basically there are no spaces, they are not invited to, there's no, there are, the opportunity costs are too high for them to participate. But also, uh, even when there are some spaces for participation, there's a lack of um, political voice. And we use the term of political capabilities to identify the, um, the, the, this is an inequality that comes from the lack of information, the lack of sense of entitlement, the lack of self-confidence that in, in action, in practice, um, represents unequal political voice. And also unequal power to influence decisions and challenges of representation at greater scales. The fact that people have need to rely with representatives that not necessarily represent equitably all the constituents in a community is, is a source of, of um, a challenge and are prone to elite capture. At the same time, we identify some of the qualities of inclusive or some corrective measures that can be taken to balance these challenges for the meaningful engagement of citizens. And this include investing in reducing the gap in individual and collective political capabilities, 
um, securing access to information, climate information services, and reducing the digital gap. And um, from the public spaces, designing inclusive, inclusive public spaces and be willing to engage in long-term collaborative governance arrangements over longer timeframes. So instead of seeing the citizen engagement as discrete processes to engage in a social learning processes that are sustained over time. In, um, from the recognition side, um, as you remember the recognition dimension has to do with um, valuing different knowledge systems, valuing different cultural differences. Um, and uh, this comes from the fact that many cases uh, of injustice originates from the lack of recognition to cultural differences, differences in value systems, um, different um, uh, source of, 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 of knowledge. Um, and in the context of climate and conservation, what we know is that indigenous knowledge systems can provide useful lessons on how to effectively design and implement nature-based solutions. But the knowledge and rights continue to be marginalized and disregarded. Um, from our project with them, engaging pastoralist communities through citizen movements to amplify their voice, we documented the ways in which combining traditional knowledge with science is, has been key to develop su successful nature-based solutions and community resilience. Uh, working with the Paran Alliance, uh, it's, um, it's a network of pastoralist communities in Kenya. Um, we documented the way in which Paso Trostland, for example, combined traditional and technical climate information. Um, uh, they have a partnership with the National Drought Management Authority and they use community weather monitors that combine met data coming from the NDMA with traditional knowledge being generated within the community and that rely in their indigenous methods of weather forecasting. And they disperse this merged combined information to the community using various means, including local radio, um, which broadcasts in local languages and informal social gatherings and, and world level meetings. Another part of the recognition challenge is to shift the narratives of representation of local communities and traditionally marginalized groups from passive beneficiaries to knowledge holders, active agents with agency and, and human dignity. Um, our, race, uh, our research shows that um, communities bring unique perspectives, skills, and a wealth of knowledge to, to the challenge of strengthening resilience and addressing climate change. Um, that they should be engaged as equal partners in resilience building rather than being regarded as merely beneficiaries. And the World Bank research uh, experience have shown that community leaders can set priorities, influence ownership, and design and implement investment programs that are responsive to their community's own needs. So how to overcome these equity and justice-related challenges for locally-led action? Um, Different organizations are better placed to move action at a specific level or at different intersections. Um, a systemic approach of multi-sectoral partnerships that place equity and justice dimension at the core of climate and conservation action is needed to move from business as usual to move to business unusual and redressing the, power, the unequal power dynamics that are the core of unequal recognition and unequal distributions and a lack of political voice. And finally, just to to sum up everything, um, I wanted to close with some key messages, but before that, I, I wanted to remark that 
Um, the environmental justice framework that is paying attention to dimensions of recognition, distribution, procedural justice, and also rights and duties is, is useful as an analytical lens to examine how, um, how to deliver equitable solutions for climate adaptation and conservation action at the local level. Um, some of the um, as, uh, outcomes that, that we can expect or we, we should expect from the COP uh, from the distribution side, we need to scale up finance for adaptation and resilience and deliver finance at the local level according to local needs and priorities. From the recognition side and procedural side, we need to enable locally led actions by people and communities most affected by climate impacts and ensure the full and effective participation of indigenous and, and other traditionally marginalized individuals and groups. Um, from the effectiveness side, we need to integrate nature-based solutions into national planning and investing to drive um, resilience for both local communities and environment. And lastly, from the operational side, we need to walk the talk. Uh, we need to propel implementation, um, avoid what happened with the IG biodiversity targets and, and truly promote more multi-stakeholder and multi-sectoral collaboration with organizations that also share um, the, the interest of placing intrinsic value to equity and justice considerations and who are willing to place them at heart of, of their actions. Um, thank you. That was a, a really comprehensive talk. Thanks to everybody who's here to take part and to people who helped organise, including Mark um, and also Tracy Hearn and April Dyer, who've been helping in the background as well. So thank you so much folks and thanks to everybody. Bye for now.